This is Sarah Bonenkamp, a leadership coach from Parker, Colorado, and you're listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. So what is here? Where are we? It seems like a whole bunch has changed and absolutely nothing has changed at the exact same time. I, uh, I found myself kind of in the idea that we are in a post-COVID-19 world, uh, for whatever that means. But I remember the experience of 9-11 being like, I know something has changed, and I know more things will change around me in the future, but I really don't know what it means to be in a post-9-11 world. And I think that we're all kind of figuring that out right now, particularly as we're all sitting at home. I don't know about you, but I am pretty much self-isolating almost completely. And it's because if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that um, my amazing, wonderful wife is pregnant. And we don't really know what COVID-19 will do to a pregnant woman in her second trimester. And so that has caused me to be an expectant father, somebody that wants to hyper-protect not just my wife, but my in-laws and my other family members. And we have this disease running around that causes all of these challenges, and we don't know whether we're listening to hype and and that we're being overly cautious while we're nosediving our economy, or if all of these precautions are super important because we need to protect the ones that we love and the consequences to the economy are completely worth it. It's not possible to say because we don't actually know what will happen. So I am going to shift my work and a lot of these podcasts to being digital. I'm going to start doing something different than I've ever done before. I'm going to start bringing people on uh, virtually and having conversations that way. But I do have one more interview that I've done live and in person that I want to share. It's with a man named Stephen Fairbanks, who works at a very interesting school here in the St. Louis area. It's a Montessori school that is different than most Montessori schools because it's for high school age kids. And normally Montessori is kind of for younger people. So I'm going to play this interview with uh, Stephen and I really hope that you enjoy it and that it's um, a break, some kind of separation from everything that you see going on in the world right now. But if you're anything like me, separating from the news is really hard to do. So I hope that you can kind of take this in and let yourself think about it and maybe think about it in terms of how can I let this apply to the future post-COVID-19 world. But coming up, I will in the next few days probably start doing more frequent podcasts And with those podcast guests, I'll be talking with people that I think are important to the supply chain of our food, probably in the financial industry. I'll find microbiologists. And really, if there's anybody that you think would be interesting to have a conversation with, I will try and line up an interview with them. I have found Twitter to be a really wonderful place lately. I know that there is a lot of arguing and people fighting, but a lot of that's just posturing and people dealing with their own arguments in their head and they're putting it out into the world and they're running into resistance. And that's probably a pretty good thing. You know, if your ideas are being pushed back against in social media, it may be a good check for you to say, have I gone too far in one way, either if it's over preparing or under preparing? Um, 
But I also have had a chance to talk with people that are all over the country dealing with the virus in a variety of different ways. Everyone from my good friend Lyle Benjamin up in Montana, who is living very remotely all the way up on the Canadian border. How is he handling this? To my friend Kate Crosby, who is out in Sacramento, right at the heart of um, some of the epidemic out in California. And then everything in between. I've got friends in Florida and New York and other parts of the world. And I'm going to try and tap into those things. So if you know of anybody that you think would be a particular particularly interesting interview. We are getting rid of the requirement that they be live and in person in St. Louis, and I'd love to hear it. And I hope that you interact with me on Twitter. Tell me what's going on in your neck of the world, what you're seeing, and how things are changing. And uh, we'll just try and paint as big and as full and as robust of a picture as we can. So, Without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to the interview with Stephen Fairbanks. I'm so glad you're here. Please stay safe and know that uh, we're all in this together, one great big ocean. Now to Stephen Fairbanks. Stephen Fairbanks, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, man. Glad to be here. Last time I saw you, we were down at a high school that is fashioned in the Montessori way of doing things. And... I've always heard of Montessori, and it wasn't until my buddy Rob Long actually uh, said that he was gonna he was looking into it for his kids that I started to take it seriously. And then we went to your high school. This is years later. Now I've kind of had that in the back of my mind. Maybe Montessori is not that weird if my buddy Rob's thinking about doing it. And you are the guy that I used to know from a creative agency. And now you are a major part of this really creative, interesting Montessori school. So. What is different about your high school than regular other high schools? Uh, well, a shorter answer to the question would probably be what isn't different. Um, uh, just a few sort of general things. We are what's called mastery-based. So there are no grades. So uh, there are assignments. There's curriculum. There's content, subjects, et cetera. Th those sorts of things all still exist. But the means of evaluation is far more flexible and it generally takes the form of what we would call a narrative, where the guide, which is sort of the Montessori term for teacher, will have such a close working relationship with the students that they are in a position to essentially craft a story about what has been happening with a particular student. And then that story gets shared with the student itself, the student himself or herself, uh, the student's parents on a quarterly basis in sort of a report card style. But uh, so that's probably one of the biggest things for people who come from a traditional school setting. And it's not included. just like you're sitting. Uh, my sense when I read these teachers notes homes is that they're checking a, a, a box that says it'll take the name of the student and then put in the is doing well at recess and is making friends. But it's just the teacher checking or unchecking things to make it compile into a story. Mm hmm. Is that what you guys are doing? No. Um, in First fact, of all, is that right? Does that actually happen? Oh, sure. Okay. Uh, and and certainly those those sort of box checking rubrics have value in the sense of organizing your thoughts, right? But if that's the only method, I would say it's sort of incomplete. If that's a starting point, like say a new teacher, for example, to the Montessori method, which I am, uh, I have teaching experience, but not in this environment. Um Th those sorts of things, I think, can have value and can be useful. So I don't want to necessarily summarily poo-poo them. But 
the I think the where I see value in the narrative is I'm sending home on a quarterly basis a, a, a three or four hundred word document to a parent just about how their student is doing in reading and writing, just about how their student is doing in humanities, which is sort of our version of history. Uh, and so the parent and then down the road, potential employers, college admissions are getting a much more comprehensive picture of the child, of the student, than a number or a box checking type thing could possibly provide, I think. If I was going to regular high school, I get there at eight o'clock, I go to English class, I go to social studies, I hit PE, a little bit later we get lunch, I got two or three more classes, I'm out of there. That's my conception of the way high school works. Is that how you guys do it? No, we have uh, one, one detail, we, we're actually middle school and high school, which is interesting. So we have grade seven through 12, uh, although right now our student body just has seven through 11. So we've not yet graduated a student. Oh, okay. Year. You're really new, though. Very much so. Um, our typical day, our, our week, I should say, includes three core academic days and two days that are community and activity focused. So on Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, the students come in around 8.30. We have a meeting, which we call sort of a morning circle that happens at 8.45. Sort of a welcome introduction to the day, any necessary announcements, and then at 9 o'clock, uh, the entire school, which in our case is 31 students, has 30 minutes of silent reading. They can go anywhere in the school and engage in a book. The only requirement it is, it actually has to be a book. Graphic novels are fine. Nonfiction's fine. Fiction's fine. Not a magazine. Not on a computer. You know reading. what I thought you were going to say? Hmm. I thought you were going to say, first we sing some songs. <laughs> We've not sang. Well, I'll tell you later a story about I had to sing a song once. But it's but not like a, it's not like going to summer camp or something. Nope. Okay. No. This is interesting. Yeah. I wasn't expecting the silent reading. I was I was imagining uh, like hippie flower children. Nope. Okay. No. Okay, because just to be totally honest, the way that I knew about Montessori is that I was living out in Mendocino, California, and for people that don't know where Mendocino is, it's the it's uh, about. It's about two, three hours north of Berkeley, mm -hmm. and the people that move there are the ones that think Berkeley is too conservative. Mm -hmm. They're like, Berkeley just isn't far enough to the left for me, <laughs> and they go up there. And they are perfectly lovely people. Wonderful, you know, yeah, love yeah. them, love them. But they, they were very granola, California-esque, and there was this one woman named Athena, this Greek woman that loved Montessori. I had no idea what it was. I one time was like, Athena, you're a teacher. Would you like to come? Um, we, we were thinking about doing a spelling bee on the radio. I was working at this public radio station. Oh, so cool. And I was like, we were thinking about doing a spelling bee, and she lost her mind on me. She was so upset. I have never seen this sweet, sweet woman. She was like, how could you possibly think I would turn children's education competitive? How, how, you know, you don't know me at all. And I didn't realize what I was saying was so offensive. But in my mind this whole time, I've thought, well, then that's what Montessori is. It's for the people that it's no competition. Everybody's clapping hands and we sing lots of songs. So that's where I started on the Montessori. That's why when you told me that you had left your job to go do Montessori, I was like, okay. <laughs> Pause. <laughs> 
So now you, uh, you, you've got me at 30 minutes of silent reading. I mm-hmm. was not expecting that. Okay. So now what? Now what? How does their day go? Then, then at that point, we split high school, middle school, which in our case means seven and eight are together. Nine, ten, and eleven are together. So, in the sense, uh, it's it's multi-age education or one-room schoolhouse style. I teach middle school humanities, reading and writing. So all the seventh and eighth graders are together for those classes. The high school teachers who handle the similar courses have nine, ten, and eleven together. At that point, they'll go to reading and writing for thirty minutes. My middle school students come upstairs with me in that middle room that I showed you, and then high school students stay downstairs. And then at 10 o'clock on the academic days. What is reading and writing class all about? Then? Language and literature. Uh, so they're going to get writing instruction, whether uh, everything from creative writing to argumentative writing to expository writing to journalism. Is all writing being done on computers or do they write things out longhand? There's an awful lot of longhand, um, although there are, I have a substantial, I have enough students that get frustrated with their own handwriting that we do allow a lot of composition on the computer. I'm glad you said that. So uh, I was hanging out with a group of my buddies last night and we pulled out our kind of like, how do you keep notes, you know, when you're running around and we were looking at the handwriting and uh, man, I wish that was a skill I had paid attention to earlier because I'm going to try and improve my handwriting, but it is going to be so hard after having done it for as many years as I have. But your own handwriting is the only way you really capture ideas, I think. Like, I put them into my phone, they're gone. Agree. Agree. And there's apparently, I wish I could cite chapter and verse, the neuroscience, but there's a, there's a substantial amount of data that shows that a handwritten note, a hand, hand-taken note, is far more effective in leaving an impression on the brain and leading to recall, understanding, than a typed note. And just think about when you receive a handwritten note versus an email... You know, somebody takes the time to write you out a long, beautiful email about something great. Yeah. Somebody sits down and writes with pen and paper and then mails it to you. There's something genuine about it. I want to save those things. That's right. I want to put them in a a special place. Right. It's easy to put an email in a folder or delete it. Right. And even if you print it, then you've got nice Google's like, you know, letterhead on top of this, you know, deeply personal thing that you have. Right. So I'm, I'm. I think that that it's definitely worthwhile for kids not just to have handwriting class, but really focus on it. There's something to it. Totally agree. And we, you know, we even get into with some of the kids who are struggling. Like, what position are you sitting in when you're taking notes? Because posture will affect like a comfort level. The wrist will be less sore. The, you know, the, the kids who like lie down on their bed to do their homework, right? Oh, you know what? We, you should have Annie come in and put on a class about posture. And I would school. love that. She'd be able to look at the chairs and talk yes. about like, these kind of chairs will be good for these kind of students. And oh, and the kids will love it. Yeah, She's really good. For sure. Yeah, I would absolutely love it. And they love when, when somebody comes in and it's not just like, oh, the teacher said. Like, no, 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 no. Somebody who studies ergonomics says. Yeah, that's They're right. very receptive to that. Yeah. And you know, if there's so many things that had I d- known when I was a little kid about your posture in particular, that you're like, it's not just like your mom being like, don't slouch. It's like, hey, hold your body in this way because when you grow up to be an adult, you're going to look like a doofus because mm-hmm. you can't sit up straight in a chair or you're like leaned over. I, I mean, if only someone had shown me, I would have corrected it. And it sounds like you're in an environment where the kids could actually learn that. Cause oh, for sure. What are you going to go do this at the middle school up the street? No, no way. 
It would never fit into their curriculum. No, I have a buddy who says, um, for similar reasons, he says deadlifts are good for the soul. Like the whole idea of being upright, not just physically, but morally. Oh, yeah. And so he makes the, the connection. He's like, no, you'll, you'll be a better human if you do deadlifts a lot because you're improving your posture. And if you naturally just sort of stand up straight, they're going to be positive outcomes. Amen. From that. Yeah, for sure. And so kids are doing reading. They get reading and writing. Um, they're reading what in your classes? Uh, we started with a short story unit. Uh, where we sort of broke into topics and they could self-select a collection of three short stories. They get to choose their own books? Oh, yeah. The, the, the Montessori is huge on choice with within guidelines provided by the parameters. And I think that's part of the reasons that they, they've latched onto the term guide rather than teacher. Because teacher has so many connotations of like a top-down command and control. Like, I'm the great bestower of knowledge. When almost all the research about education tells us that the more the student is engaged in designing the learning process, the more likely they are going to be to retain anything from it. And so I gave them six options. Each option had three stories. They could pick those. So the oh, kids that were okay. into like survival read three Drake London stories. The kids that are like really into goth and sci-fi read some Edgar Allan Poe and some William Faulkner. Um, is this the same reading that they're doing in school now? Because I know those are the books I should have been. I read a ton as a kid, but way outside of the bounds of what was required. Because mm -hmm. what that was required, they were trying to do it for the middle of the bell distribution and making it like, we're going to try and choose a book that most of you can read. But a bunch of you are going to be bored out of your mind by probably. Yeah, and it's yeah. not going to make any sense to you. And, and the classics are just too hard because the further we get away from them, then people think like, oh. Oh, no, the, I would absolutely say these are within, these are canonical texts. That's great. For sure. Um, yeah, that's one of the sort of myths about Montessori that I think we could dispel right away. At least in our school, um, we are absolutely about the classics and, and sort of what we think should be taught uh, within the parameter of the students still helping like construct how they're learning. This is interesting. So what does Montessori think the classics are? Well, I think what you would expect. No, I mean, I think that this is like, okay, a, okay, this so is like a cultural thing. We think that everybody else. I have, so I have a master's in literature, okay. in English literature. Okay. And so the text that I was exposed to as somebody who majored in English on undergrad and then studied it at the graduate school level that collection of authors, sort of the canon. And I think it's... So it's, let's mark that in time, because that's like, th this is a good question. Like, mm -hmm. what what is the canon? So is so you mentioned Jack London, mm -hmm. right? So he was writing those, what, in the late, 20s? Late 1800s. Late 1800s, okay. Yep. So it being old gives it some significance, because you're like, hey, it's lasted quite a long time. Yeah, that's one of the tests, for sure. I think another one of the tests is what... what what are the texts that other people who have studied literature are engaging with and still talking about? Okay. So uh, as far as how old, we, our kids are going back to Shakespeare. Our kids are going back to, we were reading um, some Mesopotamian texts in our humanities class, Gilgamesh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is probably considered to be the first thing, at least in the Western tradition, the first story ever written down. Yeah. So they were engaged with pieces of that. And I'm sure you know that you have a dog named Tiamat. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. That's um, a good, good catch there, man. Uh, so, um, yeah, I would say that, that my notion of the canon has always been one that expands and grows as we learn more. So it's not rigid in the sense that there's just this group 
and there's a lock and key on the box, and nobody else is allowed in. Obviously, the canon expands when you get to the 20th century, and finally starts to including more writers of color, more women, etc. Um, but I still think what makes it canonical is, is it great? Yeah, that's right. Is it archetypal? Does it have something that transcends? So you're going to be perfect to talk with it. So I have this book club. Actually, like I started it, but now it's kind of run by the group, right? Like they have ideas about what books they want to read. And, and, uh, I've been focused on this concept, uh, Lindy, the Lindy effect. So this is coined by Nassim Taleb. And he's basically just saying, what is the likelihood that a book will be around 10 years, 20 years, a hundred years in the future? Will the odds go up for a book if it has been around for that long. So basically saying, you know, if a book's been around since to kill them, let's say um, a Bill O'Reilly book from five years ago, New York Times bestseller, odds are probably be around for another five years. More than that, we don't know. Mm-hmm. To Kill a Mockingbird, written in whatever the late 50s, early 60s, probably going to be around for another 60 years. We can count on that safely. Maybe longer, but definitely that amount. So the further that you go back, the more likely it is to be in the future because it survived the kind of culling that goes on mm-hmm. with just people quit reading it. Right. And so I'm interested, do you do you see books in that way too, that kind of Lindy? I do. I do. And... And I also have another lens that I've been using for some time, and, it, and, it's, and it's an approach I borrowed from a mentor in undergrad who used to say that great literature does two things. It, it rewards r- repeated effort. So if you come back to what, what makes a piece of literature great is if you can come back to it on a second read and get more. Oh, that you got good. the first time. Yeah, <clears throat> that's one criteria for that's great right. literature. Another criteria for great literature is that it should accomplish two things. You should learn something specific about the time in which the author wrote it, about the people, about the sort of zeitgeist, for lack of a better word. Uh-huh. And there should be an attempt to to communicate with what we might call the literary tradition, the the, the eternal concerns that mankind has been exploring through literature. That great literature should do those two things. You should you should learn to kill a mockingbird should teach us about <clears throat> the moment in time in which Atticus Finch was taking up the the mantle of race relations. And it should also connect us to something about striving or the questions that mankind has been trying to to ask himself for for, for centuries. Uh, man. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. Because there's a lot to talk about because I was just listening to something today. I, I um, Somebody put up a book club that was like the Ag Book Club. And I was like, hey, look, let's look at these books and let's see, are there any books in here that I'm not going to agree with? Yeah, there's one right there. And it's a it's a book on veganism. And uh, the guy starts off, it's, it's called To Eat Animals or something like that. It's very simple cover. It's the Ag Book Club, if you want to look it up. But in the, I, I've only listened to the first two chapters. And he is clearly creating characters that are going to, he's going to place into the world. Like this was my grandmother who, you know, went through these terrible trying times and she would eat anything she could get her hands on. And I had my son and he's so pure and I only want to feed him the best things I can. So he's like placing these symbols on the shelf and you know, he's coming back for him. Oh, sure. And so I'm just sitting here uh, hearing him spin a yarn. And it's it's interesting because one of the things that he says early in the book is stories articulate rules, um, convey rules. Stories convey rules. 
And that is what our Bible, Torah, you know, any of the other books, the, mm-hmm. the fairy tales, they are trying to convey the rules that you should, you should play by in order that you can get along better in oh, the yeah. world. And they're far easy, easier to remember rules that way than like <clears throat> chiseled into stone tablets and, and handed down from Mount Sinai, right? That, or, or not, not, not remember, but so much as like adhere to them. Right. If I have an example of somebody, you know how to apply them. Yes. Yeah, for sure. In, in some way, like when you say guide for the student, they are kind of on this adventure to learn for themselves. If I'm doing my job, right. Absolutely. And do you see every kid naturally having that alertness, that awakeness that knows I've got a chance to learn here? To varying degrees. Yes. There are, there are, there are students who are already very clearly high achievers because of the environments in which they've been raised and, and already have some pretty astounding habits in place. Um, there are others who have, what do you mean astounding habits? I have a seventh grader who is a black belt in Taekwondo and who wants to win the Olympic gold medal in four years. Like it's a stated life goal and literally every decision he makes every day of his life is for that. Um, yeah, I wasn't that disciplined. Yeah, not so much. Uh, I have another uh, seventh grader who has been doing aerial silks, uh, the the fabrics that hang from the ceiling like at the Cirque du Soleil. Yeah. Uh, since she was six, when she and her family lived in Vegas, and also does uh, theater and sings and writes uh, fan fiction every night of her life for like ninety minutes. She goes home and she just writes. She creates these stories based on the books that she's reading. That's the way you get good. Just mm-hmm. keep cranking on that writing. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a habit. That's not a homework assignment. That's a, I look forward to this every day of my life. Wow. Um, I have kids who are devouring books like Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel in the seventh grade and coming back for more. Why? <clears throat> what, I mean, this spark takes energy, right? Why? Why is this in them and not... I mean, I don't, maybe, the, maybe other kids are doing that, but my impression is it's not going on in other places. Well, I mean, have I met other kids like it? Yeah. I would honestly put my own daughter in that category. She, she definitely. And she went to regular non-Montessori mm-hmm. school. What yep. do you call schools that aren't Montessori? Are they just traditional? Traditional. I okay. I, I, the, the general dichotomy in the education world is traditional and non-traditional. Okay. So you're coupled with all the non-traditional and traditional is that state run? State run, but I think there are traditional private schools for okay. sure. Yeah. Uh, in terms of, um, you're segregated by age. You are um, the day is segmented in a very regimented, what you might call industrial kind of way. Um, there are metrics that you are calculating and then evaluating against, whether those metrics are attendance, um, ninety nine out of a hundred on a test, etc. Yeah, and you have to make it fair and you have to make it transparent because all students are compared with one another and you're going in the great book and there's people on the top and people on the bottom. Right. And right. and your case is that students don't learn as well in that environment? I when I got into Montessori education I read something interesting by a by a prominent advocate for adolescent which in the Montessori world is sort of age 12 and above. Um, for, for adolescent Montessori pedagogy. And that statement was, the traditional school system works just fine 
for the best students. So the students who have good habits of work, who comes from who come from homes where both mom and dad are there and present and talking to them and college educated and read, you know, all, all the sort of the socioeconomic indicators that underpin high academic achievement, the, the, that, that the traditional system works just fine for those students. And the traditional system worked just fine for me. I, I did well. I tested well. I wanted to learn. My parents reinforced that at home. What I was missing when it was working out for me was the, the sort of vast gulf between me and my peers and the people around me who were sort of like floundering or just sort of uh, meandering aimlessly through school. Did you do well in school? I did. Did you like it? I loved it. Who were you in high school? Um, I was a little, little confused because I had transplanted into St. Louis as a sophomore after six years in a small town in Western Pennsylvania. So who I was, was a little muddled, but I played soccer. More played, than more, more muddled than most people. Well, in retrospect, no. Um, and I did a, just, a, I did a fine job of hiding it for sure. Uh, I don't think anybody who knew me then would have been like, oh yeah, Stephen was so muddled in high school. I was in honor society. I was involved in like the pep rallies and stuff like that. I was enthusiastic about where I went to school. Um, like I said, I played varsity sports and then tested off the charts and got a full scholarship to college, but never bothered acquiring work, good habits of work. And so I ended up dropping out of college pretty quick. No way. Yeah. I was not expecting that. Yeah. Wow. As you were telling this story, I thought, man, I've always been jealous of the people that were so good at joining uh, things and having school spirit because they were so much more connected. And me, I want I, I was like, get me out of here. I still had friends and stuff, but I just I just didn't join clubs. I didn't go to the meetings. I didn't find out what time they were. And then I hear you you say, like, got in there and wasn't ready for it. No, I what it provided a structure for me because I didn't have those habits. The high school was like the perfect academic environment and honestly the perfect athletic environment for me too. When, when a coach yelled at me, I, I worked harder. When, and, and so part of why I floundered after high school was I didn't have the coach like requiring me to be to practice for three hours a day every day. Oh. And, and it took me until probably my mid to late 20s until I reacquired good habits of fitness reading, et cetera. And I ended up going back to college in my late twenties, early thirties and then finished. What were you doing in the meantime? Waiting tables. got in the restaurant business, playing a lot of volleyball. I traveled around the Midwest playing like. <laughs> that didn't even sound real. <laughs> playing a lot of volleyball. Yeah. From 93 to 97, <laughs> I probably spent 35, 40 hours a week playing volleyball. So you were the kind of guy that could hit the ball and make it hurt if, if it pounded on you. I was I was in, in, in doubles in sand volleyball. It's less of a, we call it a goon game. It was less of a goon game of like the big monster guys who can crush it. Um, and so you had to have all of the skills. You had to be able to pass, set, and hit, and play defense. And I could do that. I was athletic enough and small enough. And I could still jump well enough to compete with the big boys. But sand, the equalizer for me was the sand. When I got indoors, the guys that were 6'6 six, six and 6'7 six, and could hurt you with the ball just dominated. But I had an advantage because I was quicker, 
on the sand. And so I spent, I dedicated a substantial portion of my life in my twenties to that. I had and this is like every weekend on the, on the, on the beach and. Oh yeah. I mean, it was on the beach. No, on sand courts and municipalities off Hanley road or uh, YMCA sand court. Like it was all Midwest. Okay. I would travel to Chicago, Kansas city, Memphis, Louisville, St. Louis, Columbia. And if you were to put that into like the belt system, right. You know, white belt being total novice, black belt being expert, are you are you familiar yep. then blue purple brown mm-hmm. so uh where would you put yourself at in the oh, I mean, world just shy of the, the if, if you if we if we say that the the guys in california who are on the avp tour are your eighth degree black belts uh-huh. the ones who are getting invitations to the olympics who get sponsored by um pacific sun you know stuff like that right those are your black belts um then there's a tier of sort of satellite pro tours in the United States, or there was then. There was one in Michigan, up and down, like Grand Haven and that coast of okay. Michigan. Yeah, sure. Uh, up into Traverse City. So it was like a little six or seven stop tour up there. And that was the second best money. And it would, but the drop off was astounding. Like the, the pros are winning 70 to $200,000 for a win. The stuff in Michigan is like $5,000. And then there's a Colorado tour. And so we dialed that back to like, $2,000 for a win. So you were playing up in Michigan at, for the five? Never. I aspired to it and never got there. Okay. Never got there. Decided my my priorities in my late 20s shifted. Started having a lot of fun. Still was, make, was making nice money waiting tables and just never quite got over the hump. And it was a, it was absolutely a, a like a, a set of choices that I was like, eh, it was fun. I'm having a good time. But I don't want to take the next step in terms of commitment because I have other things. So as you're as you're living the life of going around and doing beach volleyball and hanging out, being fit, hot summer, your waiting tables. You said you're making money when you're in your 20s. Are you like, I have got this figured out? Oh, no. Absolutely not. Um, I don't even think I dared consider uttering those words. Until I was probably married with a kid and in my late 30s. Then I started to sort of settle and find myself and contemplate, like I've got this figured out in the sense that I know where I want to go with things. Uh, I was very much just sort of being swept along by enjoying myself. That's the best I got. <laughs> I mean, I think that I, I, I had a constant nagging fear that I wasn't doing uh, good enough. But that feeling wouldn't have been, it would have been there no matter what I was doing. And so it just made me have wanderlust. Like, okay, well, I'm going to do it here for a little while and I'm going to run over here because I, I just had no well, idea. Well, I, I definitely, I, I could relate to the wanderlust. Um, the, the, the volleyball emerged because I went to college to play basketball and that didn't work out. And then some friends who were also sort of like ex-basketball players had just sort of picked up a volleyball club at Northeast Missouri State, which is now Truman State, up in Kirksville. And then so I ended up playing college volleyball as an afterthought. Took to it, liked it, and then moved back to St. Louis in 93, learned that there was this thing, like the ability to play in what we called open tournaments, which were tournaments for money, um, in the Midwest. And just sort of started doing that. And then the close group of guys I played and trained with all the time, people were peeling off because life intervened a couple of guys got married another another kid graduated from logan chiropractic school yeah, yeah. and moved out west um another kid moved back to the east coast 
And so just the people that I was doing it with started peeling away. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had a guy on that was in a band and he said, this is what happened to the people that were either going to be musicians. And then some of them are like, well, that's not going to work. And I got married now and I got kids. Mm -hmm. And he's like, it was just me and my duo partner. And we were still there going forward. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I was very much being carried along by, it was fun. And like, it certainly wouldn't, would never say things like I regretted it or anything. Got a tremendous amount out of it. Loved it. Made great friends. Um, and just recently, two years ago, got back into playing sand volleyball. And I still see some of the faces of the guys oh, wow. I was playing with back in the nineties. Wow. Did they take a break too? Um, no. And that's why they're still fitter than I am and <laughs> have less of a predisposition to the occasional calf or quad injury. <laughs> so let's go back to your Montessori school. Yeah. You're teaching after reading and stuff like that. Then they have, you said it's not history, it's humanities. Well, first we have movement break. Movement break. Yeah. Recess? Which is yes. Except that there's a, like movement is a mandatory component of it. So we have four or five options for the students to sign up for. Some of them can just go outside in the back and play games, kickball, four square, we have some like a bunch of hockey sticks and balls they can smack against the wall and stuff like that. When the weather gets cold, they can come inside, do yoga, ping pong. There's a group every day that walks around Grand Center and one of the guides leads a group. So the idea is it's, it's mid-morning. We've gotten the juices flown with the reading, had the first class, immediately like get up and move because of one of, one of the Montessori principles is she talks about the connection between the head and the hand. And that, that the moving, active, engaged child is far more likely to be uh, developing the brain. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, and, and like, you know that yeah. I know that from if I'm going to write a speech or I've got something creative I've got to do. I don't get it done sitting at this desk. Mm -hmm. That's just when the work gets done. The right. thinking gets done when I'm taking a walk with my dog or I'm jogging or I'm doing like, and if you aren't moving, you aren't thinking. Yep. Yeah, and then and then you know the whole just the whole notion of like how toxic stasis can be, you know, just being static, and then and, and how that can steamroll into like what what end up being severe developmental challenges for for students who are like couch bound or technology bound. So we get them up and moving thirty minutes, then uh, at ten thirty to eleven thirty, I have my group in humanities. So we split into two groups so that the smaller group affords more personal attention. Eight of them are going to science, the other eight are going to humanities, and then the next day they'll swap. And so we have kind of an alternating pattern on the academic days. Okay. Um, then after that, the middle school students go downstairs for a uh, sort of a broadly understood STEM curriculum, some science, some math, some interesting problem solving type stuff. And our guides that do that are just friggin' amazing. And then I teach a high school French elective during that time before lunch. So my morning, my teaching is pretty much done at lunch, which is at 12.15 every day. So the students are done working at, at noon as well? <clears throat> no, uh, in the afternoons, they will have um, electives after lunch. So the middle schools, Students are required to take a foundational Latin course in seventh and in eighth grade. Foundational Latin. Mm -hmm. Why? Because it's so valuable for understanding English, for uh, instilling 
an understanding particularly of what word structures and spelling. The, the, the primary and elementary level Montessori approach does not harp on spelling. So a lot of students hit seventh grade and they're below average spellers. And the idea is if you just expose them to the language and then Latin being the root of so much of our language, that, that those structures get incorporated in a much more natural way to your, your friend who is the, the vehement spelling bee opponent's point than like rigor, rigorous drilling Whoa. of word spelling. Yeah. You're right, because that is what a spelling bee is. It's rigorous. So, and, and Latin, so I happened to check out this podcast for a while called uh, History of the English Language. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard this? Heard of it. I've not listened to it. It is mind-blowing because he treats the language like an evolving animal or Which plant. Which it is. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And starting wave. I don't even know. I mean, the roots, I couldn't do it all. But he goes back to like, why is it Indo-European? Yes. And where does that yep. come from? Do you understand all this stuff? Because it's uh, mind blowing. <clears throat> I didn't until I took a linguistics course in graduate school. And now I understand much more about it. And I also have a podcast I'm fond of called Lexicon Valley oh. that a linguistics professor at Columbia named John McWhorter runs. And, and it's a in the interesting quirks of language and what the sort of um, root causes of those quirks might be in any particular case. So like uh, one of my one of the ones that stuck out to me was an episode on the the southern accent and it focused on people like uh, Jimmy Carter's mother, Rosalind Carter. And uh, it, he excerpted several of her speeches and then he matched them up with patterns of speech that had been in place for decades in the South. And he sort of traces their lineage, if you will. Wow. Yeah, I'm fascinated by the history of language. I mean, it, it's, it's every, it's the symbol, symbolism of thought, right? And that's, it's one of those things that I remember when I was a kid, my, my uh, dad would come down and quiz us on words mm -hmm. or he'd tell us a word. And then by the end of the day, he'd ask you, did you look it up? Do you know what it was? And uh, I think my brother was annoyed by it, and I loved it. It wasn't a challenge for me. It was mm -hmm. like a game. And one of the things that I learned later was that when I went to work at a camp for inner city kids, when, when they were engaging with one another, the number of words that they had to describe various emotions that they had was really limited. Mm -hmm. So it was like, I'm frustrated or I'm angry, right? They didn't have like, I'm jealous or I'm tired or I'm, mm -hmm. they had none of that language. And without having that language, they couldn't name their thought. And therefore like being able to control it was way harder. Yeah. Imagine a frustration and not being able to name what you're, what you're feeling. I hadn't thought of it that way. And, and all that does is exponentially increase the anger or the frustration. Yeah. Yeah. You search for it and it isn't there. And I think that that's why when you find a word that precisely describes something you felt for so long, it feels so good because it's like, ah, there I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. Somebody else experienced this thing. Oh, yeah. And I'm a huge fan of the right word. Um, the, the One of the first lessons that I've taught, the, the 10 years I taught college and then even my middle school students now, on day one of writing, the first thing we talk about is how writing is an intentional act, that authors make choices that aren't just f f uh, f uh, because of habits. They're, 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 I want to accomplish a thing with this word, and that's why I'm choosing this one and not this one. And so you should read that same way. You should understand that an author chose um, morose instead of sad for a reason, right? 
I was the same way you were. That that my mom and dad were the same way with words, and I loved the same. I think stuff. I think I've just discovered that I need to change a habit that I have because mm-hmm. I love to look up words while I read. However, I started to get it where uh, when I before I would just write the words down and then go look them up. This is back before there was the internet, before I had a smartphone. Mm-hmm. Now I open up my phone and I guarantee I'm getting distracted along the way. Oh, sure. And so I should go back to that habit because when you look up a word in the dictionary and then you recall back to the thing that you were reading, you lock in with that idea, particularly normally because you notice that word, because just like you're saying, they didn't choose it on accident. Right. Right. And so you find a difficult word. I think that's also why uh, audiobooks feel different than um, books that you read. Because in an audiobook, the guy that's reading can slam past difficult words for you. And you don't have to be like, wait, I've never seen that word. Like you might be like, oh, I've never heard that. But you're not going to stop the thing to make yourself catch up with it. There's something different between audio and written word, I think. Agree. And I would even, I would even argue that the in terms of vocabulary acquisition, it's probably far more likely that the individual who reads hard copy is going to have a distinct advantage over the individual that is listening to the audio. I certainly think there's a time and a place for the audio. My, my students read Huck Finn second quarter, and two of them chose to listen to it on audiobook, and what they retained drastically outpaced their peers because they didn't have to stumble over the dialect and the dialogue of rural african-american mid-19th century america and it reads like a play like the thoughts of a oh yeah of a play so if somebody else is speaking it to you it would be yeah you're right there are some cases where it's a lot better Mm -hmm. but if you're if your goal of reading is enhancing vocabulary the hard copy is the thing that's going to do it unquestionably yeah i think i think there's got to be a word for ha, for or at least the description of books that are better for audio and books that are better for written. Hmm. And it's probably several features, you know, like one Dante's Inferno. What from what I'm told, I I didn't know this until about a month ago. So that was the first book in our book club, and um, what I thought was, man, he wrote a book that was really difficult to plow through, but for hundreds of years that was actually read as like stuff you could just throw away to the peasants. They Mm -hmm. could read it so easily and so obviously. And the characters in there, whether they knew them or not, the way that he was describing them fit them because it was written in Italian and it was spoken in Italian. But when you hop it over to English, there's just like jarring words that you're trying that the, that the translators trying to throw in there. And so as you're, as I'm reading it, I'm like, I don't know. I mean, I kind of understand what they're saying here. But it's so much work that I'm sure, and you, I could, there's no chance I could have done that book on audiobook and understood it. Yeah, there's a, you bring up a fascinating point around translation. And when I was in school, one of the things a, a professor of mine mentioned is that the Italians, in fact, have a phrase that is translation is treason. Oh. That you are fundamentally like sort of betraying the Whoa. central of idea of book when you attempt to translate it. That's funny that you should mention. Well, so I have book. I have a friend that is a mathematician. I don't think I've ever told this story in the podcast before. So he is a PhD mathematician, and he is married to a PhD mathematician, and uh, like he went to Brown, and they like they are uh, amazing, brilliant people, University of Chicago, 
Um, and so every time that I would see him, when we would like our two families would come together, I'd be like, Wade, you know, tell me about your math. You're doing like cryptography. So that's like code breaking. And he's just would kind of like slough me off. And I was like, what, you know, and he'd be really intensely watching Michigan football. So I was like, maybe, (laughs) maybe it's the fact that he's watching football that he doesn't want me to interrupt him. You know, I don't know. I don't watch that much sports, but maybe this is, and then, so I'd wait for the commercials and I'd be like, Hey man, I know about, you know, elliptical curves. And I know about that. Like I'm trying to show him, like, if you give me a little bit, I know enough about math that we could have a good conversation. So this goes on for hours and I won't relent, right? Like I, I did, I, I, like I'm, I'm completely captivated by this and I, I'm like, why won't he tell me his math? So we go to dinner, um, at the football's done, everybody's sitting around, we're drinking wine and Wade's having a couple glasses of wine with me. So I finally spring the trap and I'm like, Wade, I feel like when I ask you about math, you are avoiding telling me about it. And, uh, I mean, you're not going to hurt my feelings, but I, I want to tell you, like, I genuinely think I can understand what you're talking about. And if I can't, I will write down notes. I will find out a way to understand it. And he goes, Vance, I, 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 the best example I can give you is that I am painting seascapes. And these seascapes, there's only like 50 people in the world that really, really like these seascapes. But they really like them, and so do I. So that's all I do is I paint seascapes. But the problem is mathematics is precise. It's not a metaphor. It's not like something else. And as soon as I say that it is like something else, then I make it not precise, Mm -hmm. which breaks the thing that took me eight years to get to the frontier, to get my PhD, to discover something new. And now I'm out in the borderlands where there's only 50 other people. It will take you eight years to get here to understand me. And I don't really care if you do or not. (laughs) And like, at first I was like, you dick, you know, like that just really hurt my ego. And then I was like, you got to respect a guy that isn't going to tarnish the thing that he loves precision so he can be liked by the people around him. Oh, absolutely. And I totally respect that he could actually articulate it. Because a lot of people don't have the either willpower or the patience to do that. Yeah, that's right. So that 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 shows me he's a friend. That's right. right. Like I'm willing to explain this to you in a language you can understand. That's right. And I wouldn't have understood, and I would never. Yeah, have let I'll it give go. you the paint by number. He would have had a couple of years of me doing right? this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great story. I love that. But going back to the translation, do you speak other languages? French, I guess. Yeah. Well can yeah. you read in French? I can. I can read much better than I can listen to the language. Um, native speakers confound my ear because I, I, I didn't learn it until I was in my 30s. And I had a double major in college, French and English. Did six weeks of an immersion in Quebec City, which is 100% French-speaking culture. Stayed with a Quebecois family. I have a family connection. My mom's entire family is Quebecois. They all have French-Canadian last names. Born in northern New Hampshire. All loggers that came down from Quebec in like uh, the late 1800s, early 1900s. All right, all right, all right. So if you can you speak for how is it that an enclave of people within an English-speaking country, why do they want to do that? And, and how have they been able to make it so a small group of people can make everyone else have to have two different languages? You have to have English and French, even though it's just a small group of people that speak French. Well, they're, they're small, but they're persistent. And... They have, they have a prevailing sort of cultural narrative. You know what it says on every license plate in the province of Quebec? No. Je me souviens, which means 
I remember. Okay. And, and the French language is fascinating for a gajillion reasons. But one of the things that's really interesting about that is, do you know what a reflexive verb is? I do it to myself. So when I cut myself, I'm using cut in its reflexive sense, right? Okay. So when you introduce yourself in French, you say, je m'appelle. I call myself. The M, apostrophe, appelle. The verb to call is appeler. Me, going in front of it. So you say, I call myself. You don't say, my name is. You oh. say, I call myself. So je me souviens, the, 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 the souvenir, the word we have in English, it comes from the French memory. Oh. So je me souviens is the I remember. And so they have, they have just um, completely built this cultural importance of being French and speaking French into their lives in a way that is, that is uh, palpable. Yeah. When you're there. And so what do they remember? What is this rallying, the uniting symbol? That, that their identity is absolutely bound in the language. That's what they remember. Whoa. And that's why the, that's why the Quebec separatists were considered to be like a, a sort of borderline international terrorist group for decades. They were on the terrorist watch list in like the mid 20th century. The Quebec separatists. Do you know what's going on in, in Canada right now? I don't know. Th this blockade? I mean, by the time this comes oh, out, the, this will the, be weeks old. But no. I, vague impressions, but not details, no. So, I mean, I don't know very much about it, but I can tell you that I am going to Alberta. I will have already gone by the time this thing airs. And uh, there is a train in, in the western part of Canada that there are groups of people that are shutting it down because they don't like a gas pipeline that's coming in. Okay. They think that they're, it's violating rules. and But they are literally shutting down train lines not like oh we're not letting this one pass or that one like period they're stopped they're backed up they have trouble getting uh, grain and stuff out of the ports no i did not know that much detail yeah i mean like i think that it's it, it it'll be long news something will have happened by the time this airs so. okay cool i'll have to that i have homework tonight then yeah i mean it's an interesting uh thing but it calls to mind that that's a country that understands culture right they recognize oh, yeah. different tribal groups they have the this French connection. The Albertans definitely feel like they're separated. Yeah, fascinating. So tell me more about uh, humanities and your students. They're they're so they come back recess. Now they've not recess uh, the play. Then they do lunch. Then mm -hmm. they're doing the after school extracurriculars. What's next? Um, the the end of the day is uh, sort of an independent work time. Another central component of Montessori education, and this starts in pre-K and goes all the way up, is this idea that the student who is given the materials, the space, and the time, and most importantly, the support from a guide, uh, should be free to explore as they see fit. And that's why the, there's, a, there's a concept, especially in the younger ages, in Montessori education called the prepared environment. And one of the things you'll notice in, in the vast majority of Montessori schools is how similar they all look in terms of the materials. Math materials all look the same, the, the ge ge geography materials, etc. So um, that extends to our school in the sense that we finish the day with them having a block of roughly an hour and a half, hour and 15 minutes of time that is theirs. 
to do with what they please. They can choose to complete assignments uh, that they've been given in class. They could choose to read. They could also choose to um, occupy themselves in sort of the creative third of our downstairs room, which we would broadly call our maker space. And that could be everything from, I want to use power tools to build a new picnic table to I want to use the 3D printer to play around and like design some chess pieces or I want to go over here on the sewing machine and make some clothes or what the, sort of the traditional fine arts we have aspiring painters etc um, in the room how and much time do they get to do this hour 15 hour and a half wow and it's the last thing they do before we go to what are called jobs which is the students then clean the entire school five days a week every week of the year so at 3.15 or 3.20, jobs time is announced slash they're aware of it. And then they go and break off and we have sort of a jobs manager, one of our eighth graders. And half the students go upstairs, half of them are downstairs, they're vacuuming, they're cleaning the bathrooms, they're doing the dishes. And then we all come back together in circle for dismissal at the end of the but day. But no song singing. No song singing. I'm blown away by this, man. <laughs> I'm blown away. I, I think that as I think about this, our giant school system is set up for numbers, right? We, we have raw goods and we've got to mold them into something that we can use coming out the back of it. And I did okay in that system. You know, I, I, I certainly didn't thrive. Uh, you know, I was a gregarious, excited person that was basically told, sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down. And uh, yeah, I hear what you're doing. And I think if you're legitimate, like actually focusing on getting curriculum or getting these books read and staying on top of them, why isn't this way more popular? Well, I think there's a few hurdles. Uh, the first one would be uh, perception, um, what we might call in our previous worlds, a marketing challenge. The Maria Montessori, before she died, which was in the, shortly after World War II, had, had, when she passed away, she never uh, trademarked the Montessori approach or the Montessori name. So there's no guarantee that when you go into a Montessori school around the world, you're seeing our approach. I mean, I've heard everybody say that everyone is different. Yeah. Everyone is different. I've heard that. Yeah, and I've heard, I've heard stories ranging from uh, sort of military rigidity in the classroom and calling that Montessori like whistles and bells and standing at attention and everything short of a uniform and a, and a bayonet to, um, okay, do what you want. We'll be over here and everything in between. The, the, what my mentors in my current role, um, we call them the Melissa's, the two women who founded our school are both named Melissa. And they were trained by a woman who actually studied under Maria Montessori 65 years ago before she died. And, and so there's a strain of thought and an agency that accredits schools called um, Association Montessori International, AMI. And AMI schools all do kind of what we're doing, which is we are, we are dedicated to simultaneously a culture of work and a culture of knowledge. And those are the, that's the two-prong approach that we take. That the, that the student who is engaged in work that they find meaningful is the student that's most likely to thrive and succeed and be able to like define the terms of their success 
in their way, not a school board hands the curriculum to a teacher who does this and then is rubber stamped by an accreditation. And then you, like you said, use the industrial analogy, just get them out the door because we got the numbers to deal with. So the. Man, I really struggled in high school. Like the more I'm hearing you describe this, I remember uh, hating so badly when people would be like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because I could describe like, these are things that I like, but mm-hmm. really what they wanted is, are you going to go do PR? Are you going to do advertising? See, or are you going to do... I'd much rather have a student tell me what they like. And then, and then I can like satisfy your needs by showing you amazing things that can... Like, I don't want to know... What, what the, the data we have says what? Like less than 10% of people say they know what they want and actually pursue it. The other 90% are like trying this and then no, nah, okay, I want to try something else and no. And so I, I think what we're trying to do is meet students like you and prepare them with some sort of fundamental knowledge, but more importantly, like a little awareness of themselves. What yeah, they just like, make what it, they if you, dislike. If you can make a kid conscious yes. that you can make decisions and that there are actually no rules. You just have to figure out how to get along with your fellow human beings and stand upright, like be able to do your deadlifts. Mm-hmm. And and that's if you can do that, then fit in however you want. Thank God when I was in college, right before I graduated, I um, we had a, a family friend named Brother Leo Ryan, and he, uh, he was uh, the dean of the business school at DePaul. And he came up and he met with me. He was, and he said, Vance, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I gave him a whole bunch of bullshit answers. Like, oh, I don't know. I was thinking about being a fireman next week. And he like, didn't pretend laugh. He was like, what is it that you really want? What is it that you care about? And I was like, brother Leo, I don't know what I want to do. I know all I want to do is travel. And he goes, okay, there you go. Find a job that allows you to travel. Don't go get a job so that you can travel two weeks out of the year go do that thing that you're drawn to do and figure out how to get somebody to pay you to do it. Now, I knew nobody was going to pay me to go to the Singapore office for their PR firm, so I became a deckhand. And it was the best decision I could have made. But no one ever tells people you don't have to follow the regular path. Oh, yeah. In fact, everybody, to the contrary, is telling people you have to follow the regular path. When we start asking kids in like middle school, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right. Um, yeah, I think I think it's a travesty for sure. Back to your question about why. What are the hurdles? Yeah. Right. The the, the first hurdle is impression. Right. The, or perception. The, the idea that um, you're thinking it's one thing when in fact it isn't. The second hurdle is in most situations it's private. And so there is a cost barrier for sure. There are examples of Montessori informed or influenced rather public schools, but they're rare. And it's very difficult to scale up to like the district level or certainly beyond that. It's difficult to stomach paying property taxes in one place and then send your kid to a private school somewhere else. For sure. And particularly if you live in a neighborhood where you're like, hey, we pay probably more in property taxes because we have this good school system and it makes it competitive. Yeah. But I like what you're doing. How, how Do you see these growing? Is what you're doing going to be around in larger quantities in the future? Or are you guys... Well, that's certainly the goal. Our, our school started as an independent entity called uh, Montessori Adolescent Program, MAP School. And it started three and a half years ago. So our current crop of 10th graders all started 
nine of them as seventh graders. The next year there were um, 15 students. No, it went seven, nine, 18, 31. It's our fourth year. So they had seven students the first year, nine the second right. year. Um, and last year, the board of directors went to ATI, the Academy of Thought and Industry, which is this nationwide network that we're now part of, and said, hey, we have this going. We know, we think we align value-wise with what you're doing. Are you interested in partnering? And so we joined with them. I don't want to speak for the founders of the school, but as I understand their intent, it was to do exactly that, to continue keeping what we have amazing and special, but make it available to as many people as possible. Well, it's going to be really hard to scale because it's culture, 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 and culture. It's, I mean, I'm reminded of the way that you're talking about the lineage being passed down. Same thing goes on in jujitsu, right? This coach learned from this person, studied under this person, and you can't just go out and be like, let me just pluck this out and put it here. But you are newer to the system, right? You haven't mm-hmm. been there forever. Right. So how did you get brought into the fold enough that you understand it? Well, I, some combination of uh, luck, life circumstances, and thanks to you, I have the vocabulary to answer this last one, listening to my Damon. Yeah, there you go. Hey, <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, my backstory educationally, I finished graduate school in... Started graduate school in 2010, got a fellowship to start teaching at UMSL here in St. Louis then, and have been since teaching college writing. So comp one, comp two, business writing, that whole time. Every spring, I would look for full-time teaching jobs because I thought, I like this, I want to do it. At the time, I thought I'd want to just work at a small community college around here. I liked working with the type of student who landed at UMSL, who typically has had some, like, past life circumstance challenges. I had a lot of single moms coming back to school in their 20s and 30s. A lot of kids that had like flunked out of college the first time and then came back at 25, started over on their own dime kind of a thing. Yeah. That's a that's a f- really, really interesting group of people. Because well, they're going back you. To, well, yeah. And they're there because they want to be, not because mom and dad are alums yeah, that's and, right. and they're following in the footsteps. Yeah. Right? Uh, and so I thought community college, something like that. Three years, nothing happens. I'm still waiting tables on the weekends to make ends meet while being an adjunct teacher and have a child married. That's getting old. I've been at this point, I've been waiting tables for like 22, 23 years, man, and was starting to get tired of it. Was wanting to spend more time with my family on the weekends and in the evenings. And so I threw my hat in for my first agency job. And that's when I started copywriting. And so that was six and a half years ago. Still would look for a teaching job every spring. Was it hard for you to go towards the agency world and, and get out of teaching? Well, I kept teaching. I just reduced my load. I went from four classes a semester to just one every semester. What was your daemon saying? Um, my daemon was listening to my legs and lower back who were, who were very tired. Yeah. And, and also... I don't my, think there's anything wrong with that. And also my pocketbook or my yeah. checkbook, if you will. Um, the agency was the first time in my life at the age of 42, that I got paid to take Labor Day off. Whoa. First time in my life. I had plenty of Labor Days off because the restaurant I was working in were closed. But that was the first time I ever got paid to take Labor Day off in 2013. 
Man, that is a long road to hoe. Yeah, man. so, so it, was, it was an easy... And, and I had the good fortune of landing in the right place. I landed at Osborne and Bar in downtown St. Louis and immediately was taken under the wing of some spectacular mentors. And I've always been intellectually curious, regardless of what the thing was that I was doing. I knew food. I didn't really know agriculture. And they threw me right into uh, Monsanto's America's Farmers stuff. Shortly after that, working for the United Soybean Board. Um, and so I just threw myself into the work and I was curious and super interested. And I got paid to go to conferences and interview farmers and teach the, the women farmers from Common Ground, that USB group, uh, teach writing seminars to them because they all wanted to learn how to blog. So I was in my element. I was enjoying it for sure. But I missed full-time teaching for sure. It is interesting that of all the communications work that you could do, you were in that particular kind because it's pretty damn close to teaching. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think there's a, that's, a, that's a valid point. Um, each spring, applying for jobs. Each spring, none coming. Uh, so I kept working, and I and I and I started working my way up the ladder in the agency world, and and getting promotions and getting raises, and then, and that held a certain amount of appeal for a couple of reasons. Never thought I would experience it, so it was like, wow, this is neat. Like having enough money to travel and buy things that I hadn't considered would be part of my life. So that was kind of I remember when cool I made it into tempting. the into the white collar class. Yeah. I mean, I was I was 30, you know, and I remember like before seeing people out at restaurants and being like this guy's just wasting money. Look how expensive it is. Like I I, I was fighting for every now single I'm like, dollar I table had. Table for 4 on Saturday night, right? right? Yeah. yeah. Totally. Yeah. Totally. And it's a, it's a life change completely changed oh for sure life. for sure and i and i and again like i said i took to it and at every stop i had good people around me i learned a lot from them um and it was just fascinating and then in the summer of 2017 my mother who at that point had been teaching and um middle school math and charter schools here in the city of st louis for about 10 years she'd been teaching uh she got cancer what did she do before she was a teacher? She was a computer programmer. She spent 31 years as like a data analyst, computer programmer from the mid 80s all the way through like the first round of layoffs at Merit's when they started outsourcing um, data processing to India. I want to say 06, maybe 05, 06. And so she was probably in her early 50s without a job had double majored in math and computer science way back in the day. So she went back to school, got her master's in education and started teaching. And I used to go visit her at her school. She would have, she would use me, this is great. She'd use me as a cautionary tale for her students. She'd be like, yeah, I want you to meet my son who's Mr. Know-it-all and rocked the ACT and the SAT and got a full scholarship and then dropped out of college. Oh. And so she'd have me come and like give him my testimony about wow. what it was like to fail after being a high achieving individual. And uh, to hear your mom ask that, was that a, was that a yeah, I deserve that? How oh, did that unquestionably. feel? Unquestionably. Were they upset that you dropped out of college? They were disappointed. How hard was it to drop out? Not very. What do you mean? I mean, I was, I was, I was, I was lazy. Um, I was still in my, like the whole world is happening to me phase of my life, not taking ownership for my own decisions, those sorts of things. And so it was very easy. Like my freshman year, my dad got laid off from his job and 
I took that harder than he did, which is absurd, right? Um, I'm old enough and mature enough now to realize that, like, I get like caring for your, you know, a, a loved one who's going through a hard time, but I was, I, I took self pity to another level. I, I, you see that happen. You see that happen because particularly when you're a young person, if you don't have things figured out, you'll take on somebody else's cause to get rid of your faults for not doing stuff. And you want to, you want to join up with the large group, the mass movement. And I had to go down, I had to go down a little bit of a spiral of feeling sorry for myself. And then there's this, it's the like disappointing people you love at that age. It almost became like a drug. Where like that that was like the only way that I knew things were like I was moving through the world was I was disappointing my mom and dad or my sisters or my girlfriend or whatever. Like it was just I've thought about this a lot since then. And um, so to answer your question, was it hard to quit? No, it was pretty easy to. Um, so so this this is a really interesting way to describe that that it became addictive, meaning that they were then paying attention to you? I suppose that's a ver- there's a version of it in which that's th- or that's a component of it for sure. Um and then and then you get the whole like um you sort of wallow in being disappointed in yourself. And and that becomes your sort of defining mode with the world. Um and it it it, it even influenced <clears throat> sort of my early political leanings when I became like super the world is an evil place corporations are bad yeah reading z magazine and howard zinn and like totally immersing myself in that world it was primarily coming from a i've disappointed myself therefore i'm going to be disappointed in the world i'm just going to take that as my default mode. yeah and, and and the more disappointed i am in the world i can be like you know this is why things aren't working because exactly. nothing works right exactly and uh i mean i i had those leanings for sure and then the, uh, this last month we read the book um the true believer which is all about why do people join mass movements mm-hmm. and you one of the groups he points out is the people that have unfulfilled dreams so they had all these dreams of the way the world was going to be. Then they got there and they're like, that's going to be pretty hard to get there. I don't know. Mm-hmm. They drop out and then they join mass movements because they get to shed their own individual self. Yep. For Man, sure. how, what, what pulled you out of that hole? I met my wife. No shit. Yeah. Good answer. She Well, it's funny. <laughs> I've, I heard that phrase, you know, make an honest man out of me type. I've heard that my entire life. And probably until my mid to late 20s thought it was horseshit. And then when I met Christy in 1999, um, it started to, like I had started to do things like I was writing creatively for myself. I had starting like to, to attempt down the path of maybe writing some novels and writing poetry. And, and I was taking it more seriously in a way that that I could then be like, all right, I'm committing myself to this. And... Um, and I could feel that I was building some better habits. And then, and then when I met her, it was the first time I started thinking like, this is somebody I want to build a life with and not just be with, but like make myself a better version of me because I had been content to be like the slacky, the slacker version of me, the lazy version, the self-pitying version of me for quite some time. I look back on how patient my parents had had to have been when I like 
1998 on a whim, took a job at Starbucks as a store manager and spent that year opening the first five Starbucks in St. Louis, right? And convincing myself that like, no, actually this is like, this is the corporate ladder I'm gonna climb is I'm gonna be a Starbucks dude. Lasted a year, right back waiting tables. So I'm sure by that point, my parents were like, all right, whatever, we support you, we love you. I met Christy and then started to make deliberate, long-term restorative decisions for myself, not like just for us. Uh, The first one of which was I enrolled in uh, nursing school at Lutheran College of Nursing in South St. Louis in 2001. How far did you get in that? A year and a half. And then uh, we moved to Georgia in 2002 and I fully intended to transfer to their nursing school where I eventually got my degree from, University of North Georgia. Small town in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains about an hour north of Atlanta. And had a really... I majored in biology, took a year of biology, four biology majors, a year of chemistry for science majors, and just had a horrible experience with the administrator of the nursing school down there and got all pissed off and changed my major to English and French, which were the classes that I'd always loved the most. And so just completely changed my major. Kind of as an act of faith, Christy totally supported me in it. She could tell that I was unhappy with all the the stuff. Um, and then we got married, had a kid, bought our first house, finished school down there in 2008, have been back here in St. Louis ever since. So it was a very herky-jerky road. I mean, I, I know the experience of having a, a wife that makes you go like, oh, man, I if I stay the guy that I actually am and I don't become <laughs> the person that she thinks I am, like, she's going to see the Delta and I'm going to, she's going to leave, right? So now I have to become, like, what a mistake I made because I, sh- I, I got her to fall in love with this guy that's better than me. Uh-huh. And, uh... Uh, that's got to be like archetypal. That's got to be the story. You're right. Make an honest man out of you. Because really the better Vance was the one that was like not loafing around, not doing stupid stuff, not yeah. going out to the bars, not, you know, like that's true. Right. And there yeah, was, I, and I couldn't even imagine before I met her like that that would be possible. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. And I think that's a, that's a great point. I had never even imagined it. And, and, I, and I don't know that at the time there was a, anything sort of revelatory in terms of a moment, but, but in the aggregate over time. Yes, that's right. And then, and then when we moved, that sealed the deal because we had to create a life for ourselves. We had a life here and we were both in the restaurant business when we met, still had some pretty bad habits that were restaurant related in terms of partying and staying out late. And um, I hear the, the waiter culture is pretty wild. Oh yeah, yeah. I've I've uh, I've buried a couple friends, seen a few go to jail, seen a lot go to rehab. Oh, like that's pretty serious. Like yeah. that's that's like they party and then they go down the path towards hell and yeah. don't don't always come out. Yeah, and so we were lucky enough to extract ourselves from that. Got this great opportunity in Georgia. Well, that's not a small. Is that a conversation that you guys sit down and have? Is that an evolution of a of a change? Is it? How does that change happen when you're both a part of the culture? We, we, uh, we got on the plane on the way back. They offered her the job. She went down for her interview. And we got on the plane on the way back. And our pro-con list was the con, lack of access to the party. The pro, lack of access to the party. 
Wow. We're literally writing it yeah. on our little list of paper. And we landed, she picked up the phone, accepted the job. And so we had to go down to this place where we knew nobody in a community that was breathtakingly beautiful in the mountains, reminded me a lot of where I grew up as a kid in Northern New England, because it's the same mountain chain, right? The Appalachian Trail runs from Maine to the county we lived in in Georgia. Oh, wow. And so the, the geographical similarities are quite striking in terms of rocky, mountainous, trees everywhere. Um, and I was, I was just drawn to it, and so was she. And so we, we, we rebuilt our lives there and became sort of improved. I would argue we both became improved versions of ourselves. I got a job writing for the local newspaper. She was on the board of directors of the chamber of commerce in town. So we were like man and woman about town in this super small tight knit community and fell head over heels in love with one another and that place over that six year period of time. Man, that's a great story. You know, uh, in the ag world, I like I know a lot of people, uh, and over time, some of the people that I met early on are now leaving farming, and everybody, anybody that leaves a job that they've done for a long time, that's a hard thing, particularly if you imagined this is part of who I am. Mm-hmm. But to hear you tell the story of like, then we went to this new place and we got to be better versions of ourselves. That's absolutely the best approach that you can take from it. It's, all right, well, there are some downsides to it, but one of the upsides to move in schools when you're a little kid mm-hmm. is that you don't carry a reputation with you. You get to be whoever you are. Yeah, unquestionably, for sure. Um, and so that was that, that profound, profoundly impacted us. It was tough leaving family. Christy's from Hannibal, so her mom and dad were up there. My folks were still here. Both my sisters were here, my brother-in-law and their kids. So... It was hard, but it was definitely the right thing. Moved back in 08, and then have kind of things have just proceeded nicely since then. So fast forward to 2017, my mom gets sick. Uh, We spent a lot of time together in the nine months before she died. And she died, didn't die telling me this, told me that she was going to die with one regret, just one. And that was that she didn't become a teacher sooner. And that waylaid me. I kind of had known how much, but she spent a lot of time when she was sick missing the kids. And she was probably in stages one and two of um, cholangiocarcinoma while teaching 80 hours a week. Whoa. When they finally found the cancer, she was already well into stages three and four. And she was treating, she was uh, teaching in a traditional school? No, in a charter, well, traditional, yeah, they had grades and stuff, but it was a charter school down in the city. And so she then passes away? In March of 2018. And what happens with you? That spring, um, we, we started a foundation in her honor, my family, to raise a little money. And uh, like start trying to help support inner city kids with some of the challenges that they're facing. In particular, my mom is a huge fan of theater. And so we thought it'd be cool to like give kids arts experiences from different schools. And so that was kind of our driving mission there. Um, ended up partnering with uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters, the nonprofit, to make them kind of our first 
donation. And that led to my wife is now the vice president of marketing for the Big Brothers Big Sisters here. Because you ended up meeting people and getting involved? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So that's another fortuitous, and it all emerged because my mom passed away. Um, That spring, obviously, with her being sick and passing and everything else going on, didn't have an opportunity to go through the application cycle then. But then in 2019, when the cycle came back around again, that March, I was hungry. And I worked harder at looking for the options that were in front of me. And at the same time, I get this amazing sort of upgrade offer from Paradowski to do like a design your experience position where I get to take my interest in like teaching, my interest in learning, and sort of be like our little in-house expert to help all the creatives understand this amazingly complex ag industry. So for anybody that doesn't know, we met because you were at Paradowski. Correct. And uh, St. Louis Bank had hired Paradowski. We had met before that at, when I was working at, least, at Monsanto. At least digitally, yeah. if not face-to-face, yes. And then um, and then St. Louis Bank ended up hiring you guys to work on some of our stuff as we were buying the bank, right. including that logo up there. Right. But uh, that is one of the coolest uh, creatives agencies I've, I've ever met. Unquestionably. And like, so... I think they their their staff are cool. I like we have these meetings where I come out of there being like every single one of those guys actually did their homework. I, I met with a lot of creative agencies. Like when I walked into that room the first time, you, you guys had a huge high bar to get over because I've worked in at the World Bank and all these other like high end places mm-hmm. where everybody's competing to get their their work and uh the people show up and they're gr- so ground into to dust by the amount of work that they have to do that nobody's done any research. Nobody knows anything about your subject. And they're just waiting to give you factory style answers. Right. And Paradowski, Paradowski is the, uh, the Montessori of creatives, right? Like we came in, we had these great meetings. I really like them. So when you and I became better and better friends, and then one day you were like, I got the, you know, the opportunity to design my job but I'm going to go teach at a Montessori school. <laughs> what the hell? It was, it was, it was a really hard decision. Um, the fact that I had the, the background with my mom and the desire to teach wasn't new, certainly make it easier, made it easier. And I remember when I gave my notice, um, the, the reaction of the, the, the three men that I'd worked with most closely as kind of superiors of mine there was 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 consistent across all three. They were like, "Man, I'm gonna miss the hell out of you," and I'm so happy you're gonna be teaching. Like, they're able to entertain both of those thoughts simultaneously. You know, that's that's the mark of somebody that is wanting the best for you. Mm. You know what I mean? Without like, a doubt. And there are a lot of bosses that because they they hear somebody else coming in, and they know this is gonna mess up my workflow, my management, my whatever. And they can't get past it to be happy for the person. Yeah. They can kind of fake it. But when somebody is actually happy for you, oh, yeah. that's a self-actualized person. You can only be happy for others when you're comfortable with yourself and who you are. And I think it's a, it's a function there of the culture that they've built earlier. You mentioned how difficult it is to scale anything when culture is the central criteria right. for growth. Um, and that's what, that's what Paradowski is... I've never worked anywhere. And I've worked in places with 10 employees and 250 employees and everything in between. Never worked anywhere where they were so dedicated to 
replicating culture rather than just sort of replicating expertise for the sake of right. Um, and who's in the power spot? Like that's what other, the the I mean it's just like in your schools, right? You have a couple of powerful people; they're the ones that make decisions. Oh, yeah. If we want change, you got to convince that person. And if you can't get him to change, that makes the uh, work environment so. It's exactly like you're describing with school, mm-hmm. top down. Yep. And you, I, I it's interesting because I have Paradowski as a as an example, and another company called Ag Biome, of companies that are large size they're doing really sophisticated work like how many people were at Paradoski when you left well when i started i was like the 55th employee and they had because of the the bear business coming on they were probably up into the 80s maybe even 90s by the time i left and i think i think ag biomes that same kind of way okay. i think there's probably some have you heard of this concept called the dunbar number mm-hmm. so it's the number of social connections that you can have before relationships start breaking down yep. i'm sure that happens working in a business and that once they get over, I think the like regular person's Dunbar number is like 300 or 340 people. Yep. You can kind of keep track of relationships enough that you can stay in touch with them. Right. Facebook tries to not show you more than a few, like a uh, hundred or so people because you can't keep up with these other people. Really? They know it. If they just showed you a constant stream of everything that your 900 friends say, you'd lose your mind. You'd mm-hmm. be like, I don't understand what's, you know, this person doing over here, but they show you the same band and then they have kind of concentric circles sure. outside of that. Sure. And, uh, I think that that's true in work environments that once you get above a certain number, people don't know each other. So trust breaks down and it collapse. Because when I think of the same thing that's going on with ag biome and Paradowski, you have a culture and what you're describing with the Montessori where the people want that environment so they behave the way that people in that environment would mm-hmm. behave. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's the ultimate buffer for stressful work, which certainly um, supporting industrial agricultural communications in 2019 is stressful work, unquestionably. You're trying to convince an awful lot of people to either change their point of view or at the very least soften and accept and and there the stakes are high. That's so interesting that that's how you describe that work. That I, I that is because you're you were working on the same types of things that I was. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but I have never have described it that way. Really? How have you described it? I don't even know. Like I, you know, I don't know. That's absolutely what what we felt like we were doing. And 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 so the stakes are high and. The other, the other, I think, uh, hallmark of the culture there at Paradowski, and I would argue at my school too, is everybody has an intense amount of pride in what they do. So not only do they want to do this difficult thing, they want to hit a home run, right? They want to wow the pants off of these random guys from St. Louis Bank that we've never met before. And yeah, we've never done banking, but they just seem really cool because Gus had met Travis. And so there's all this like, yeah, let's give it a shot. And, and so everybody gets excited for it. And the only buffer I think that's, is able, that you can sustain is the buffer that is culture and trusting the people you work with and being able to be like, all right, we're all in this together. You know, it's so weird because when you get into these business relationships where you're asking somebody else to be creative for you, it, there is a weird um, tension that comes up because 
People won't agree that they love something if they don't love it. They may say, ah, that's okay. I don't, you know, but once you start exchanging money for your creative ideas and you get a group of people together that have to be like, all right, guys, we have to have enough pride that we do things well, but not so much ego that we're hurt when they don't like it or that they don't understand it. Yeah. And the other thing that I learned at Paradowski, um, Brad Hauk, their uh, VP of creative there taught me this, uh, is, is it's awfully tempting as an ambitious, smart individual to trust in your first idea. Because a lot of times, especially if you come through traditional schools, what do teachers reward? The first idea. And to show your work. Yeah. Um, what One of the things I learned there, and it was a painful learning process because it involved damage to the ego. But then you rebuild. Is Is being able to come back on a first idea that at the end of the moment, you're like, man, this is good. A clever turn of phrase or an interesting sort of creative concept. And then, and then to hear the smart people around you be like, not feeling it. Yeah. And then to like be able to like look in the mirror and go, yeah, you're right. We're going to go back and, and that, that's where that logo came from. There's people who were willing to be like, yeah, almost. Well, not quite. All right, let's keep. And and just having the ideas continually molded, like mm-hmm. you were taking people's conversations and their thoughts, and and taking ideas that were wild stretches away. Like I, I the creative process, is, particularly with you thinking about graphic design, right? What you're trying to say is we want to create a symbol that will bring to mind people you or your organization or the things that you do. But it is captured just in this squiggles on a page. It's astounding. It really is. And the people who are good at it and 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 like the visual side of it still feels almost like a foreign language to me. I'm still at the point where when somebody shows me the thing that is elite and just very good, I still sometimes have a hard time telling you like what the difference is between the decisions that went into it. Because like your, it's going to take eight years to understand my seascapes analogy. I was working with people who had been graphic designers for 15, 20 years, and they still had the same hunger and willingness to doubt themselves and, and critically improve themselves that they had on day one when they were like eager to get the That's job. the only way that if, you, if you're going to work... Yeah, that's the only way to make mm-hmm. your life worth living. Like, if, if you are not working on something where you are proud of, like, the skill that you are hewing out of that, that experience, there's got to be something else. Agree. Totally agree. And I feel like I've found that at my school. I feel like I have found that, like, and I found an environment in which I'm allowed to tinker and experiment and improve myself in a way that can happen like day to day, week to week, instead of you're locked in for this year. If it doesn't go well, okay, you keep forging on. We'll try again next year. Like I'm able to adjust on the fly if something doesn't work immediately. So what, what skill is this then, you know, hewing out of the the parts of you, what has been hard about what you're doing here that's made you better? <clears throat> a couple things. Uh, you think school, 
obviously there's content or curriculum, right? I am building curriculum for my classes. We don't use textbooks. Another difference between us and traditional schools. So to build a history, an American history curriculum, sort of the the act of what a textbook writer would do, but I would argue better because I'm personalizing it to my group of students and I'm getting to weave in things that I'm passionate about and interested in. So, hey, I spent six years working in agriculture. I'm gonna have like this ag technology theme that I'm weaving through my entire year of this year's world history. And the students are into it because I'm fired up about it. Not because I'm giving them some like arbitrary list. So-and-so says agriculture is important. It's like, no, I met farmers and they're cool and this and that. Um, and so that, that's one skill that I'm definitely honing and sharpening. Another skill, and I would argue is every bit as important, and one that has been harder for me to sharpen, is the uh, psychological term for adolescence is like what they call the social-emotional plane. So at this point in their lives, social development is the thing. Academic development will come. But social development in adolescence is critical in terms of shaping a successful human, right? Discipline issues arise, emerge. One approach is the student who can't sit still, you yell at him to shut up and sit down. Not everybody's going to turn out like Vance Crow if enough teachers tell them to be quiet and sit down. Some of them are eventually going to shut down or worse, right? So, so I have kids who struggle with ADHD, for example, and have a very, very difficult time not talking out or not like jumping up in the middle of the classroom. And one of my coworkers, Andrew, who's our science teacher, talked to me about one of these students before the year. And he says, you know what I learned halfway through the year last year is I could just say to him, hey, why don't you go run outside and run around the school and then come back? And this is probably the most well-read kid in the entire school. He is thirsty to learn. And he is just... I mean, I couldn't, you couldn't stop me from saying the answer once I knew it. And I I was that same kid. Yeah. Uh, And so I I can relate to him and we've developed a special bond because of it. Because, but now I can say to him, hey, why don't you just run outside for a little while, come back, boom. And we're good. And I have to imagine that this happens on some level in the schools, the traditional schools, but time seems so pressed oh, there for sure. and everything has to be organized and, and pressed into boxes. Like mm-hmm. I understand the value of, of order because you can do it in mass production and this chaos way means that it is incumbent on the parent to be like, let's go check out the French teacher. Does he actually, you know, get French classes done? Because in the school system, you can just kind of count on like, yeah, they're going to do, we know they're going to do this job. Right. Let's hope every once in a while they, because uh-huh. I ran into, like, I should be very clear. I ran into high school teachers that were great and profound mm-hmm. and, and everybody has them and they, they heeded their calling. But my Spanish teacher, I don't have any problem in the world saying she just phoned it in, you know, like, she, and she was just barely phoning it in. Yep. And uh, when I needed Spanish, I didn't have it. I had to learn it on my own. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So the discipline, the discipline thing has been tough for me because, again, I was an athlete my whole life. I coached a whole bunch. And, and you responded to the yelling. I responded to the yelling. And that has always been my, like, I would make them run sprints after practice. Like, you would, you punish bad behavior, right? Right. Um, 
The other thing too is wait. What do you know about bad behavior? Can you not, do you not punish it now? I have a story. All right. The way we go about uh, intervening, for lack of a better word, is you don't react in the moment unless emotional or physical harm is impending. Okay. So an extreme bullying situation, for example, you would you would step in. Somebody's about to get hurt physically, you would step in. Just about every other situation you observe. And you observe as closely as you possibly can. Then, when you have access to the student or the group of students later, after the situation has been diffused, you come back and you approach them. And you don't approach them and say... Like, like a student who's having a hard time, you wouldn't say, like, what's wrong? You wouldn't start there. You wouldn't assume that, like, something is broken or bad or wrong. Okay. You would say, what I observed was you raised your voice and you said these words to this person. And, and what I observed earlier today was, like, you seemed a little disengaged in class. And you, you lead the student toward some awareness of themselves and, and when it works, it doesn't always work instantly, but when it does, invariably what happens is the student picks up the thread of conversation and continues and admits that they made a mistake, admits sort of why they're off today. Um, and is that happening because they don't feel threatened by mm-hmm. they're about to get in trouble? Yep. And you, so you have to build a space where that can happen. So again, you have to have culture. And our two co-founders, Melissa and Melissa, have done that. It, it's, it's funny, Andrew's only been there a year and a half, and I'm the, I'm the newest guy. And he's told me what his whole first year was like last year. And he calls what they do Jedi mind tricks. Because they almost... I've never heard either of them raise their voice. Ever. And, and we have a group of students that can tempt one to respond by ranging your voice. There's certainly kids in there that are wanting to sort of hijinks right um and so and they almost never actually respond in the moment and they have accumulated so much credibility with these kids especially the ones that are sophomores and have been there for two and a half right. three years right that when they do open their mouth it's like someone's scraping the needle off the record like everybody stops so we'll be in our morning circle and and our our the level of expectation there is the way you show attention is with eye contact and by not talking that's how you show a guide or another student. That's that you, correct. That you're That's the correct like answer. The two things, right? So if somebody's not doing those two things, my inclination would be to be, Vance, will you please stop talking, right? Which might solve the problem in the moment, but it also might piss you off because you're 14, you're having a crappy day, you didn't get enough sleep last night, you're going through puberty. Yesterday, somebody made fun of your hat. Right. And so all this is spinning around your head. And now I'm the bad guy because I told you to be quiet. What they do is very quietly say, could everybody please show their attention to Emma when she's talking, please? And everybody shuts up. And I just turn and look. It's incredible to see. It's expectation, right? It's, yeah. Uh, that's, that's really powerful. Yeah, like we've talked about this. I'm not introducing a new concept. How do we show attention? And I'll see them in class too. The class will get rowdy and, and, and one of them will say like, somebody remind me please what the expectation is for paying attention in class. 
And, and you even see posture shift when that happens. Now, is it perfect? Do kids still have bad days? Of course, it's not perfect, right? But it is profoundly impactful in ways that I had never. Well, and I think the long-term like spin that that molecule, that child gets is I, even for being six foot four, you know, 200 some odd pounds, I still really fear getting in trouble. Yes. I don't want to get in trouble. And like, you know, eventually you hit a point where you're talking with your wife and eventually she says, you know, like, I'm not, I'm not going to get you in trouble. Like, let's <laughs> just, just talk to me about what's right. going on. Right. And you have that realization of like, oh, that's right. There is no one in charge. <laughs> <laughs> like, I can do what I'm, you know, what I think is. And as long as I am upright, as long as I am thinking about it for me, well, then I'm going to navigate through the world better. Mm-hmm. But if your view of the reason that you should behave is because you're going to get in trouble, one, it gives you a really bad relationship with authority. Yes. And two, it makes you frightened to step outside of the lines because you don't want to get in trouble. Exactly. That's powerful stuff, man. Yeah, it is. And so those are the two fronts, I would say, that I feel myself developing on, for sure. Um yeah, I would say that the, the curriculum front, the discipline front, the other stuff has been has been sort of um, feels more like play to me because we're so small. We all do all the things. So we don't have a school nurse. We don't have an administrator. We don't have a principal. We have five guides and 31 students. We're all in the boat together. So when we build out a creative expressions unit, like our art class, or a physical expressions unit, like our gym class. Uh, we have to work with the tools in front of us. So my coworker, Andrew, is a certified personal trainer. So he does like a track and field unit because he has experience doing Man, that. my PE teacher didn't know that much about me. Right. <laughs> about about exactly. personal training. Um, I'm able to draw on my past lives in, in basketball and volleyball and cycling in ways that I can be a resource for the students doing the things I love doing and talking about the things I love talking about. Man, the more I think about this, the more I think there must be an obscene amount of teachers locked into the traditional system that would, that would love to do what you're doing. Yes. As a matter of fact, um, that guy I was talking about earlier, the guy who was a pro cyclist in the track yeah. who was visiting. He brought a, a friend of his who's a teacher at a local school in St. Louis um, because he's been wanting to like nudge him in our direction and he's been in the public schools and he's experiencing sort of the ceiling that is I've done what I can do in his current role. And then the only way to do more is to become principal and exactly. change the rules. And in then... which case you're not in front of the kids anymore. Right. Right. And you have talk about boxes to check your whole life as boxes to check right and standard emails right and not upsetting anybody too much so you get to keep in that position that's exactly Um, right i'm going to change the subject because i'm i'm worried we're going to run out of time um the the video but uh you tried the virtual reality headset i did so what was your experience there what did you think of that well i was surprised that i wasn't like dizzy or disoriented at all when i did the google cardboard five years ago, four years ago. I still have it, and I'll pull it out occasionally to like show people who've never experienced it at all. Uh, I was overwhelmed by like how like, it was almost vertiginous. I, I, I'll never forget once I gave my wife one, and it was an undersea experience, and she put it on, 
and almost fell off the stool she was sitting on because she was so disoriented. So I was really surprised at how steady I felt. And then I was surprised at how long it took me to realize that I had a 360 degree in every axis environment that I was in. It just keeps We're becoming so bigger and We're bigger so and bigger. We're conditioned to yeah. live within our peripherals. Right. And really even a much narrower probably That's right. range. Um, and so it took me a few minutes to realize I could actually do all of that. And then I was surprised at how it, it took, I would say, a minute and a half to two minutes to get the dexterity yeah. down. And that's that was the source of frustration because that's something that I pride myself on is I feel like I have exceptionally good hand-eye coordination. I spent my whole life good at things like ping pong and pool and ball sports. And so that was frustrating to not get the fingers to work right. So then once all that settled down, um, I felt like I was in the world. And, and then I started the, the, the one that I found myself, I felt like a little boy, the paper airplanes. Yeah. Like I'd pick one up, throw it, pick one up, throw it. Then I picked up two. And I threw, and one of them kept going farther than the other. And I, I giggled. I laugh a lot, but I don't giggle much. And I had like a type reaction to it uh, that, that was like, it was a central nervous system reaction. It wasn't just a. Yeah, that's right. Um, it, it touches you all the way down in the that fact was, that. It wasn't just surface at and all. And it's because you're figuring out just like a little kid did yes, how to interact with exactly. the world. Yeah. Exactly. It, like the a, first time you tie your shoe and you're like. It's a different form of consciousness. And it is going to have <laughs> such like huge ramifications for what is real. What is it to be human? What, like you're going to be able to interact with things. They will react to what you're doing. And how is that different than what the way that you and I interact? Mm -hmm. Because I interact with you, you react to it. I don't know what your programming is. Just the same as you won't know what that computer's programming is. Playing video games in there will be, as far as your brain can capture them, real life. When one of the first thoughts I had was, who's going to be the first person to figure out cool ways to use this for education? If I could take my kids and put them in the battle at Thermopylae, which the movie 300 was based on, yeah, with virtual reality, or if I could take my kids and put them at... Well, so think about this. Think, are you sure you want to do that? Because like, let's imagine you did that. You're going to have to do it in ways that are obfuscated or it would be possible to literally show them what it is like to murder a person, right? Like, and the experience of what you can do. Hmm. I know you could say, well, you could do that on TV and you'd be careful of what you show kids, but you will now be experiencing things such that the, the decision, the teacher decides what software to load into that and the child will not, you won't be able to be like, oh, it was just TV, honey, right? Because hmm. it actually encompasses all of the way you look and feel and hear. Your brain won't distinguish it from real life. You know, it'll be interesting then. What I would be curious to know is, let's say I did let somebody learn what it was like to kill somebody. Does that mean that their brain is now wired exactly the same way a murderer's brain is? I had not even considered that. I mean, you're going to have experiences, but you've stripped away the risk, right? Like, and... 
and risk is valuable in, in like I, I give the example of if you were surfing in Tahiti right on the I did it so I'm on this this surfboard everywhere I look is the wave there's not another person there it's just the way that I am but it's actual video there and then you are up inside of the tube and then you fall off and you go underwater the whole thing works right I had that experience but did I because I didn't go to Tahiti and do all the work to find out where is Tahiti? How do I get a plane ride there? How do I get out there? How do I do this safely? And yet I've had this experience. But did you, did you have it in the sense that you had to balance right or you would fall? It was pretty good. Was and it? I mean, okay. it's, it's only a matter of time, right? Yeah, that's this true. Is just like, now that you can see what this thing can do, to me, there's no, there's no edge. They will be able to do it in as high depth. You will not be able to distinguish it from regular life. Hmm. That's scary and pretty alluring. Yeah, I got it because my I was telling my friend Chris Oliver how scared I was of it. And he's like, then you need to buy one and you need to figure out. Your fear says there's electricity there, so figure it out, which is why I show it to people and right. say, what do you think? Oh, that's nuts. Well, what do you think that thing costs? Is the cost just the device or the software that's running on it too? Uh, like you have to buy more games, but the, all the stuff that you did came on it. I haven't bought anything. I don't know, I'd say like two, three thousand dollars. Yeah, it's four hundred dollars. What? Yeah, that's what I'm telling you, man. It's about to get crazy. Oh wow! It's, a, it's about to get. So that barrier crazy. is going to be gone soon. Gone. I mean, they're going to give them away. In fact, the first one that I ever had that I ever touched was somebody had it given to them as a gift, and it's because Oculus was trying to sure. get them out to people. We actually have two Oculus headsets in our school. That we've never used. Yeah. Well, you should have a real discussion with your students about it and record it because th there will never be another time when people haven't tried VR, right? That's right. Like, so this is like the moment going back and saying, go check out in with people before the internet comes online, before there's Wikipedia, right? Like go and, and I would recommend recording it and put it in a time capsule because when people see it, they won't remember what the world was like before it. Yeah. And now, now I'm going down this spiral rabbit hole of like, what will it do to like relationships? I mean, if, porn will be insane. If you could get, if you can get any experience without another human being providing the experience for you. Oh my God. Yeah. Right. Right. Why would you need to learn social skills? you could lock yourself in your own prison and never even know about it because you then build into this virtual reality world. You invest hundreds of hours of your time and your energy. You take it off and in physical world, you're nothing. You, you're fat, you're, you're broken down and you could say that's terrible or you could say, think of all the people sitting in nursing homes right now that nobody comes to visit them. They could be flying through dolly paintings and 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 you know living on uh, you know Mount Everest. Like so, there are these positive things, but it could be also a hellscape. You know what? I'd be amazed to know. Has anybody tested virtual reality on Alzheimer's patients? I have no idea. I I saw this thing and I bought it. I was like, I need. I need to explore this, but I have not done very much research. I just show it to everybody I can. I've heard fascinating things about like how engineers are using um, augmented reality on particularly tricky design problems so that they can work in a virtual space with 
Yeah. And now you and see it, how that would be possible, right. right? Because you could zoom up and zoom down yeah. and, and like you think about the physical activities, you could train somebody to be, you know, at least have the dexterity of a boxer. Well, that's or exactly the, what I thought when I was hitting that tetherball was like, this is like the, the, you know, the, we fit times a million times a million only it's immersive, right? Not external to you. Right. And it's, and it's only just the beginning. Just wait till it's just little gloves that you put on and you actually do have the, I mean, there's no limit. Well, man, we could go on forever. If people wanted to find um, more about your school, where would they go? You would look up uh, the Academy of Thought and Industry and our website is thoughtandindustry.com. And there are uh, five campuses, five high schools nationwide. So you could search, you just click on the campuses tab. And St. Louis will appear. Where are the other cities? There. There's one in Austin. There's one in the East Village in New York. And then there's one in San Francisco. And then we also have middle schools in San Francisco and Charlotte and uh, Hollywood Beach, Florida. Wow. All right. And if people wanted to get to know you, you and I interact every once in a while on the Twitter. How would they find you there? On Twitter, I'm at, at STLWordBanks. What's that name come from? St. Louis. I'm a writer, so word, my last name is Fairbanks. I've had that. I wrote a blog I uh, started like 10, 11 years ago that I dabbled with for a while, and it was called Word Banks on Words, and it was just like my, my random thoughts on writing. So Word Banks was sort of this alter ego that I carved out for myself. So it's STL Word Banks. Correct. All right, man. Thank you so much it's for coming pleasure. around. Thanks this for having great. me on. This is good. Oh, that, that was great. fun, dude. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always so nervous that I'm going to miss the time and the videos will shut off and I want to cut it off. How long are we talking? Uh, Jesus. Here. 